Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this word that you have written for us, that you've communicated clearly to your church, that you have preserved wonderfully and providentially for your saints. God, thank you for the word that we have come to this morning, the word that we desire to understand. Um, because in the end, we are not here um, just to hear my thoughts um, or, or my studies on this passage. If that's all we're here for, we might as well go home. We want to hear from you. We need to hear what your word says. And so, Father, I ask that you'd watch over me and help me to speak what your word says and watch over all of us and help us to hear. Um, I, I think even like those, those uh, who were at the base of Mount Sinai so many thousands of years ago and heard your voice enunciate the Ten Commandments and yet still disobeyed you. They heard your words from your lips and they saw the evidence of your power, but they didn't obey. God, help us to hear your words and help us to obey. God, thank you for your mercy and thank you for your love. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, without which we could not hear, we couldn't understand, we couldn't turn and be saved. There'd be no basis for our salvation, no price for our redemption, no possibility, no, no possibility for us to speak with you. Lord, I pray that you would teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the main passage, the main exhortation here, uh, and I don't want us to miss it, is don't refuse the one who speaks. Um, two weeks ago, I made a big deal about what that blood speaks, and today, uh, the author of Hebrews is making a big deal about don't refuse, right? Um, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So how does this fit into the greater narrative of Hebrews? I'm just going to remind you again briefly. Uh, this is sort of a, a wrap-up, I guess, of the first ten chapters or so, the truth that's being taught. It's not every single nuance of truth that's taught, but it's the big points uh, that Jesus, that through Jesus we have a complete divine revelation. Through the prophets, we had words from God which were true and reliable from God's own lips and watched over by the Holy Spirit as they're given to the prophets and even as they're preserved for us. But through Jesus Christ, we have the perfect revelation, the final revelation, the complete revelation of God to mankind. He's greater than the angels. Certainly the angels were messengers, but Jesus is the greatest messenger the true and the perfect and the complete messenger uh, of God to man. Uh, he's also the perfect human representative. We had a representative in Adam. We had many representatives, or Israel had many representatives through various kings. But we have the king of kings and the lord of all lords. We have a greater human representative. We have a greater and a better and a new and a lasting and eternal Adam in Jesus Christ. He's a greater leader than Moses a greater prophet than Moses. And he leads us into a better rest than Joshua led the people of Israel into. The full and the, the true Sabbath rest that, that the rest of, of coming into Israel was pointing to for the people of God for all time. We have a greater priest who does a better ministry, a lasting and a, an eternal ministry 
who offered one sacrifice instead of many, but one sacrifice that was greater than all the others combined. One that was good and sufficient for all believers for all time to be always right uh, with God. His blood was of a better quality uh, and it speaks a better word. And the covenant that he calls us into is an eternal covenant with better and lasting promises. This is the truth on which the author of Hebrews hangs all his exhortations. It's also the truth um, which is the basis of his warnings, right? Since this is true, you need to be careful. I mean, really, you could sum up all of the warnings like that. Since this is true, you need to be careful. Pay more careful attention. Fix your thoughts on him. Watch out that you don't turn away. The y'all is the proper English, you plural. Watch out that you don't turn away. Make every effort to enter his rest. Let's press on toward maturity. Let's draw near. Let's hold fast. Let's exhort each other. And then in chapter 12, this this, uh, urging, this exhortation to pursuing holiness has unfolded for us in chapter 12. And this is really really the the goal of our human lives. Um, You know, we say, you know, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Um, That's not an exact quote, um, but it doesn't matter. It's not the Bible. It's the confession. of Anyway, um, point, point being that holiness, the pursuit of holiness, is how we worship God how we show who God is, how we magnify him, how we uh, portray the truth of the gospel to the community around us, how we portray, not how we communicate, how we portray the truth of the gospel around, uh, to the people around us, it, to the church and to the, the unsaved who are outside of the church, is by pursuing holiness. And in that pursuit of holiness, we have to strive. We have to struggle. That was the main point of, of one through four. It is a striving. It is a struggling. It is a, a, a marathon, not a sprint, as Jim Newcomer told us a couple of years ago. And then in verse 5 through 11, he says, And by the way, while you're striving for holiness, things aren't going to be easy. But you don't want to look at that as, as, as anything other than evidence of the good discipline of your heavenly father. Evidence that he has indeed called you his own, that he's adopted you as his own, that that you are legitimate sons and daughters, and that God is using that as a tool to what? To make you more holy. Suffering and trials proved the holiness of Christ, proved the righteousness of Christ, brought it to completion as as in that Jesus lived a full and a complete human life perfectly. And so it is the same manner in which he is making us perfect. Also, the Christian race is not a competition that we have with each other. We're not shoving each other behind us in our pursuit of holiness. But we are grabbing each other and encouraging each other and pulling each other along in this pursuit of holiness. It's a team sport, a team effort, not an individual pursuit only. And then in 18 through 24... Why should we pursue holiness? Why are we pursuing holiness? Because the God who called us is holy, and he's calling us into his real presence. He's not just calling us up onto a mountain where he's going to shake the mountain and speak his words aloud. He's calling us to Zion. He's calling us to his presence. He's calling us to Jesus. 
And Jesus' blood testifies to us that we have a place in the presence of God, that we have fellowship with God through him. He's calling out to us, you are justified in my blood. You are justified by the new covenant in my blood. So today, he says, because of all this truth, because of the greatness of all this truth, don't refuse Jesus. That is, don't refuse the gospel. Don't refuse the gospel message. The one who speaks, do not refuse him who speaks. That's the exhortation here. See to it. I, what, I love about, what I love about language is that so many times, um, NIV does a great job in their translation. You know, if you've ever looked at an interlinear Bible, sometimes it's very confusing the way, the structure of the, even the order of the words. Uh, and I think the NIV does a really, really good job of giving us, giving us the point of what he's saying. And I, as I was looking at this particular uh, verse, one of the things that I thought was really cool is it actually uses a, a word that is often translated literally see. So that the, the same figure of speech that we have when we say see to it that this gets done is the same figure of speech that's being used in the original language here. See to it. I thought that was pretty interesting. Maybe it's not interesting to all of you, but see to it. Watch out. Be careful that. Make sure that that you don't refuse him who speaks. Make sure that you listen. The gospel has been preached. The gospel is being preached. Make sure that you don't refuse. And I'll make this point again later, but I want to make it now. We need to remind ourselves that he's talking to a church. You know, the, Paul's letters, most of them are written to churches. All of them are written to primarily believers. The New Testament is written to believers. Yes, it has application for unbelievers, and yes, it should be shared with unbelievers, and yes, God will speak the truth, hopefully, uh, in an unbeliever's heart as he calls them to salvation as we share with them the words of scripture, but the New Testament is written to believers. It's written to encourage us, to teach us, and to warn us. And so this warning, I don't want to read this warning and skip over it and say, oh, well, it's, you know, you're, you're a Christian, so you're okay, you don't have to worry about it. Well, no, he says, don't refuse him who speaks. Why? Because this, this pursuit of holiness is a lifelong pursuit. From the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ until the moment you stand in front of him, you need to pursue holiness. We need to pursue holiness. And so don't refuse the gospel truth. Don't hear about the shed blood of Christ and think little on it, as he said a couple of weeks ago. Understand who it is that is speaking and don't refuse him. So one of the things that, you know, I, I, when I share the gospel with people, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing, um, many times people have said, well, if I just knew that was true, if I heard God speak, or if I had some kind of dream or vision, or if I, you know, if I had some kind of experience where I heard God speak from the heavens or did some kind of miracle, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Not unless the Spirit of God was present in your heart to give you faith would you listen 
because all those people that were at the base of Sinai, not all of them, but all of them who were 20 years and older, older, 20 who, who were who were adults, with the exception of Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua, all of those who heard that voice thunder from the mountain, they all died in the desert because they didn't believe. And they saw more evidence than you or I have ever seen, physical evidence, that is. So see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. He speaks truly through his word. If you're a believer, then he speaks through the Holy Spirit who is present in you, that inward testimony that his words are true. Don't refuse. Then, of course, he uses this example, he said. And this example, he uses all the way through. I mean, the first time he did this was in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, where he said... um, where he said, since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, referring back to the law given at Sinai, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? He uses the same logic. He says, if they didn't escape punishment when they heard the testimony of God while they were on earth, on earth, then how will we escape if we turn away from the one who warns from heaven. Now, the one response to this might be, what do you mean uh, the one who speaks from heaven? Well, he's already said in several times, and and he's not the only one, uh, the author of Hebrews is not the only one who's spoken this way. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, toward the end, Paul speaks in the same way about this same thing. He says, it's as if God is making his appeal to, uh, through us, through, through believers, to the unbeliever, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he talked to his uh, disciples uh, in, in the few chapters leading up to his, his high priestly prayer, um, and then multiple times in, in the Gospels, we see you know, that the one who accepts the testimony of the disciple who is preaching the gospel, accepts the one who sent sent him, that is, Jesus. And the one who accepts the words of Jesus accepts the one who sent him, that is, the Father. There is a real and a true sense that every time somebody hears the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to them, they are hearing the voice of God from heaven. That is happening. For all those who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ have heard the voice of God. That's what he's saying here. There's a real sense. I can't remember chapter and verse right now, but Jesus at one point points out to the Pharisees, haven't you heard God who is speaking through this text when he says? He says, God is speaking. If you pick up the Bible and you read the gospel, God is speaking. It may be your inner monologue voice, whatever your inner reading voice sounds like, but truly, originally, it is the voice of God. He is testifying from heaven every time the gospel is preached. That's the reality of what's going on. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has many times been pointing his audience, and therefore us as well, to the fact that the gospel is the true, is a true relationship with God. It is not something that's representative like the temple on earth was, or the, uh, even in some senses the whole, the, the whole idea of, of um, sacrifice and atonement 
through the temple was always pointing to the the true reality of reconciliation through Christ. So he's not calling you to types and shadows anymore. He's calling to you from heaven. Everything has been manifested through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. So God is testifying to you. That's why you don't refuse him who's speaking. How much greater would that punishment be? Now, uh, in, in verse uh, 26 and 27, uh, he says, At that time his voice shook the earth. Now he's talking again about Mount Sinai. He's, the author of Hebrews is going to put a couple of things together here, so I'm going to open them up a little bit. He says, At that time his voice shook the earth. That's uh, Exodus 19 and 20. You see the earth is shaking, uh, maybe in 21 as well. But you see the earth shaking, and people are terrified. Now he quotes from Haggai, chapter 2. And he says, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, I want us to make sure we understand this, right? He says, okay, so back at Sinai, when there was a mountain that could be touched, even though you would die if you touched it, when he was speaking out loud, and they could hear it, his voice shook the earth. But then he said, once more, I'm going to. Now, so uh, I wanted us to look just briefly back at Haggai chapter, well, really the book of Haggai. It's two chapters. We're not going to read through the whole thing. But I want to read you the introduction because I want you to understand the, the, the cogent point. That is the point that ties this passage from Haggai to the passage in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, I'm just going to go and read. It's only a little bit of an introduction. So here he says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you... For you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but, have not, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but they're not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to read the, the entire book of Haggai, but I want us to understand what is, what is it that the, that the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to the people to say. Well, it's clear in that opening section that they were not concentrating on completing the building of the temple of the Lord. They were concentrating on building up their own houses, on providing for their, themselves. And the point uh, that God was making here was this, this famine that you're experiencing, this lack that you're experiencing. It's because you are not focusing on the main thing. And the main thing for you right now in this time is to build my house. And he goes on in chapter 2 to talk about he's going to fill the house with gold and silver. And that has a, that has a, a layered meaning for us. Um, for, the, for the people at that time, he's saying, look... You complete my house, and I will make it great. And God would do that throughout the course of history. The, the temple, by the time it was in Herod's time, by the time Jesus came, the temple was vast and huge and rich physically. But God was also pointing to the fact of holiness in his house. 
the holiness of his house, the beauty of his glory represented in his people. And it was also pointing to the fact that they needed the temple to be, to, to be accounted as holy before him. And again, this is shadows. To the people that Haggai was ministering to, they were getting shadows. They were getting foreshadowings of Christ. But it wasn't any less true because it was a type of Christ. It was true precisely because it was based on the coming of Christ. So, so he's saying, you need to build my house because you need to be holy. And you can't be holy without the temple. This is the system that I've given you whereby you'll be holy. He points out their defilement and how their defilement of their own selves touches everything that they do. And how everything is defiled. They haven't built the temple yet. They, haven't, they, they aren't able to be in a right relationship with God because the temple hasn't been completed. So those temple sacrifices that need to happen in order for them to be accounted as holy aren't happening in the right way. He also points, I think, secondarily to the fact that they're more concerned with themselves, with their own house, than with the house of God and the things of God. That is the cogent point. That is the, the, the fusion that he's, he's uh, or the, the, the coming together of ideas that he's talking about. Because in Hebrews, the, the enemy of our holiness is satisfying our fleshly desires. The enemy, the enemy of our holiness, the thing which prevents us from pursuing holiness, is the pursuit of our own godless desires in this world. In 1 John chapter 2, he says the same thing in a slightly different way. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Because ultimately the things of the world are passing away. And the one, who does the, will of the, God, uh, the one who does the will of God will live forever. Jesus says the same thing when he says, you know, you need to treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Peter told us, because that inheritance that kept for us will never spoil or fade and nobody can steal it. Moth and rust can't destroy it. So the point here is building up God's house. The point of holiness, that's the connection of holiness, okay? So as you, as you all, as we all together, as all of God's children together pursue holiness, we are saying yes to the things that God has said are important, and we're saying no to the things that God has said are trivial and passing away. And so we are increasing in this life in holiness, and we are building what will amount to a beautiful weight of glory in eternity. By pursuing holiness, what we are doing, church, is we are having our minds and our hearts and our lives focused around the house of God. And not our own houses. That's the connection there with Haggai. He says, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And again, in, in the original quotation of this in Haggai, what God is saying is, you know, I'm going to uproot, and I'm going to turn over all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And that particular part is a look forward at what God would do through Christ. Every other kingdom will fall down. And the kingdom that's carved by God uh, out of a mountain of, you know, by the finger of God, that kingdom is going to grow and fill the earth. That is the kingdom that's going to last. When God shakes the earth and the heavens, and what he, notice what he says here in 27. He says, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things. Remember, back in the beginning of chapter 11, when he talks to us about what faith is, he, he, I think what he, one of the things that he points at there is that faith actually undergirds reality. Faith in the word of God and faith in God, that undergirds reality. So, the, so that the faith that we have in Christ, even though we can't see it or, or touch it necessarily, it is more real than the things we can see and can touch. Why? Because those things will not last. This chair is going to be destroyed. This body is going to be destroyed. Everything in this earth that people value is going to be destroyed. He's going to shake not only the earth but the heavens. That is the, uncreated, uh, the created things and only what is uncreated, only what's not made of flesh and blood, only that will remain. And again, I, I pointed you to First um, John for a reason. Because he says, whoever does the will of the Lord will live forever. So as we pursue holiness, we are building on that spiritual character that God says will last forever. And as we pursue other things, we're investing in a world that's being destroyed. That's why that investment won't last. That's why the treasures on earth are, are, are frivolous and unimportant. They're all going to be destroyed. He's going to shake all things, not just the mountain, but the whole earth and all created things. So he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, I'm not going to make a ton of observation here, but I just want to make this one. The holiness that you are striving for, if you are in Christ, that holiness cannot be undone. That holiness is building. Whenever I think about the holiness of God, I think how, how dreadfully short of it I am. And I'm sure that that's on, on your own hearts sometimes as well. And even though we can't see it sometimes, I think in, in, probably it's normal for most of us to see more of our faults than we did 10 years ago. But we are nevertheless increasing in holiness. And that holiness will not diminish. That holiness is going to grow. The one who has given us the promises initially has guaranteed it. That kingdom cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God cannot and will not ever be shaken. That's a wonderful promise. I want to say something about this here. Let us be thankful. There's really two possibilities I'm not going to go into a long detail about the, uh, the, the, the word itself, but the word thankful is, is tied to the word for grace. Um, they, they share a same root. Uh, the, the root of the word thankfulness in Greek is grace. Um, it's actually the word, uh, it's tied to the word Eucharist as well. Uh, Eucharist, the E-U part, means good. 
And of course, charis is grace. So Eucharistia is good grace or giving good grace as a, as a verb. So being thankful. Um, in a few notes I saw on uh, in lexicon notes, one of the things that stuck out to me was um, seeing the grace of God through Christ as good. Something to that effect. I'm not quoting it exactly. But seeing and acknowledging that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is good. Thanking him out of that. So I didn't want to miss that point. Um, the older translations, the KJV, and I think, was it the NIRV? Something like that. Anyway, there's a couple of older translations that have it this way. Let us have grace. Um, and so I'm not sure if the sense of that is more of an exhortation. I think it is. Um, that when you have an option, when you're standing at the base of the mountain, and let's talk about the real mountain, right? And the, the blood of Jesus is testifying to you that you can be justified, you can be forgiven. And instead of going up on the mountain, you have the allure of the world around. You can pursue holiness, pursuing Christ. Or you can pursue something else, pursuing the world. You have a choice in front of you. Almost like Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy, I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. Life and death. Choose life. And so the same choice really is ahead of us. Let us choose grace. Now, I'm, I'm not educated enough to be able to tell you particularly about the biblical Greek here and whether it means let us have grace and choose grace or whether he's saying, let us be thankful. I can only tell you that both of them are biblical. Both of them are true biblically, and you can find them in other places. So both of them are important. Does that make sense? Whether he means it particularly here, one or the other, it doesn't matter really. Both are biblical. Let us be thankful, and let us choose grace. And so, or by which... That and so can also mean by which. So, you know, thankfulness and grace are things by which we can worship God acceptably. Does that make sense? Our service to God is unacceptable if it's not by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Our service to God is unacceptable if it's not received with thankfulness. That cool word, uh, Eucharistia or Eucharist or whatever, um, exactly in whatever form it exists, that thankfulness, it's also in Romans chapter 1. Back in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, you know, they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or glorify him, depending on your translation, or thank him. Eucharist. Acknowledging that his grace was good. Thanking him was a lack of thankfulness. So thankfulness is incredibly important here and as an attitude or an aspect of your attitude toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Accepting it with thankfulness, gratitude, not thinking we deserve it, not thinking we've earned it, not thinking we'll earn it eventually, we'll come up to scratch eventually, eventually we'll be worth it, and God will have to give it to us. But humble gratitude. Also with reverence and awe, Reverence, I don't think we need to go over that point again, is holy fear and awe. Awe at the very presence of God. 
If a representative, if a shadow of the presence of God, if manifestations of his power and glory and holiness were enough to make even Moses tremble, then the reality of coming into the presence of God should make us all have an attitude of awe, trembling of our, of our souls before God. Because he is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 9. We see Nadab and Abihu when, in several times in the Psalms when this, these words are used that our God or the Lord is a consuming fire. The point is almost always the same. That God will not tolerate idolatry and evil and wickedness. And that he consumes like a fire. Another, I think, important point of this consuming fire uh, is one that was made a few times. I can't remember if it was Isaiah or Jeremiah. I'll have to look it up later. Um, but where God talks about the refining process of his people, and he, he makes the comparison to the process of refining metal. And he asks about all this refinement, and he says, when it's all done, is there going to be anything left? In other words, if, if there's this chunk of ore and within it is, is something valuable and it has to be heated and beaten over and over and over again in order to bring out that inner beauty, when everything is heated and beaten, is there going to be anything that remains? Or are you going to be dross? Or are you going to be what's been shed off? And the point is still the same for us. God is refining us. At the end, will there be something left? Well, if you don't pursue holiness, there won't be. After all the suffering and after all the trial, there will be nothing left if you don't pursue holiness. Because only the one who does the will of the Lord will live forever. I want to leave you with a few final thoughts. I've already made the first point, but I'm going to do it again. The author of Hebrews is writing to a church, a gathering of believers. This message and all its warnings are also to the church, to every single one of us. Um, you know, different commentators on the book of Hebrews have different opinions about whether, he's, whether, the, whether the author is, is trying to signal to people he knows that are unbelievers within the congregation who've never made that leap. And he's trying to you know, urge them to do it. Other people who take it completely wrongly are saying, no, no, it's to believers because you could lose your salvation. I don't believe either one, of those, either one of those things is true. I believe that he knew he was writing to a mixed group and some would be saved and some would not. But I think he also understood that the life of faith is the life of endurance. And so in a, in a real way, within a congregation like this or any real congregation... We don't know about our brothers and sisters until we see them in heaven. We have plenty of good witness. We have plenty of good testimony from their lives. That's true. And we can hear their words and see their passion for Jesus. And we can believe that they're true. I'm not saying we should doubt each other or even doubt ourselves. But it's the life of endurance that is the life of a believer. Without endurance, without perseverance you'll prove to be an unbeliever. This warning is for all of us. We must persevere. 
Secondarily, God's primary concern is for his house, his people, and their holiness. Talking about in the connection of this passage here, obviously there's other things that God's concerned with. But holiness of his house is his concern. What is your concern? Is it for God's house? I'm not talking about a church building. I'm talking about the holiness of his people. Yourself, your brothers and sisters, your children. What is your primary concern? And whether or not thanksgiving is exhorted here, it is the proper response of a heart changed by the gospel. You know, as we sing these songs, one of the reasons I love we always sing a song after afterward in this first message is because that is the response of praise, especially through singing, especially through thanksgiving. That response comes out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Remember that, that thanksgiving, the old, the old term for the Lord's Supper is Eucharist, thanksgiving. This is proper thanksgiving. As we take the Lord's Supper, understanding what was done for us through Jesus Christ, we are giving proper thanksgiving to God. That can only happen out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Let's pray, and then we're going to praise the Lord in song. And then I hope that you'll be praising the Lord and worshiping him rightly through the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have called us to holiness. Thank you that you have given us so many strong exhortations um, and so many wonderful truths to trust in. Thank you for giving us so many biblical examples um, in chapter 11 that we can see their faith and we can see how it worked out. We can see how they made choices uh, of obedience and how that led to your crediting them with righteousness and testifying that they were your people, your saints. Testifying, really, that you are faithful to all who will put their faith and trust in you. Father, thank you for the warnings that keep us um, focused on the gospel, focused on your grace, focused on lives of holiness. God, give us the strength, please, and the focus to pursue holiness, and to help each other in that regard. Father, help us to understand the seriousness of what you have done for us, and help us to have attitudes of thanksgiving that just continue and persist, that we'll be the most thankful people that people encounter because of what you've done through Jesus Christ, and that we'll always, always be quick to share that with others. God, help us to pursue lives of holiness so that we can show uh, your greatness to those all around us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.